Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Steve. I'm Erica. And I'm Sarah. So friends, we are in a new season of the church year. In fact, we're in a new church year. Um, and so we're going to be combining a couple things that we love to talk about. We love to talk about pop culture. And we love to talk about liturgy because we're church nerds. And <laughs> so we're starting a new series today, a little bit lighter than our last series where we're going to um, each take a week and just kind of talk about something that's pop culture that kind of relates to winter and Christmas and Advent and all those kind of fun things and, and how it helps um, define our faith, how it helps us to grow in our faith. So Sarah, what are we starting off with this week? So today I want to share with you the audiobook I listen to every winter, usually around the time that it, like we get our first snowfall that stays. So, like, we've had a couple of flurries now, but it's, like, melted by the afternoon. So, like, that doesn't count. <laughs> like, I wait for the first snow that stays and it's not cold. And I listen to my favorite audiobook. And this is important. That's an audiobook because I listen to it in the car as I'm driving to work. So, like, driving through the snow and the cold. Um and this audiobook is Followed by Frost by Charlie N. Holmberg. It was published in 2015, so this isn't a very long tradition of mine. I've only had this book for like two, three years now. Um, but it is about this 17-year-old girl, Smitha, and it's, it's a fantasy fiction book, so like it's set in that like kind of Middle Ages fantasy world where we don't actually have like a time period or a country everybody seems to speak English and uh, like don't have technology and have horses and etc etc so set in that kind of fantasy world and she is very snobbish like she is just the worst and she has this young man who would really really like to court her slash marry her I'm a little bit unclear as to if his end game is actually marriage or if he just wants to like go out on a date and she keeps like just ignoring him and avoiding him and he's not picking up on this hint that she is super not into him and eventually he just straight out asks her hey meet me by the docks at sunset and let's let's talk and she's like okay sure i'll see you then and then she just doesn't come she doesn't she just stands him up and so the next day he like confronts her about this and is like understandably upset and she's just like, haven't you picked up on this? I'm not interested. And he's like, well, you could have just said no. You didn't have to agree to meet with me if you didn't want to meet with me. And she just kind of keeps adding salt to the wound. And it's just like, no sensible woman would want to meet, meet with you at the docks at sunset. And yada, yada, yada. And he goes, oh, if only you knew who you were messing with. And turns out he's a wizard. Sure. And as you would expect, just <clears throat> a, a creepy wizard, wizard. slightly right. creepy wizard. So he decides to curse her, and he says, "I curse you, Smitha," because that's her name. 
to be as cold as your heart. May winter follow you wherever you go, and with the cold, death. And so she like instantly just feels so cold. And it turns out she becomes so cold that within a three mile radius around her is just winter. And such a cold, deep winter that if she stands around you for too long, people will die. Like, she ends up being driven out of her town because children and old people are starting to die from the cold and from the winter. And so she is driven out and she like takes a little bit of food with her but she's finding it hard to eat because when by the time she brings it up to her mouth it's frozen solid like water is frozen solid. like she's having a hard time like nourishing herself but she is wandering around trying not to stay in one place for too long and death starts visiting her like the personification of death and it's the rest of the story is her journey as she kind of, she starts realizing that how you treat people matters. And eventually she is able to find to be go to a place where she's able to use her curse to end up blessing others. Um, like people from the south find her who live in a desert country and they're experiencing a drought and so they bring her to her country and kind of take care of her and just have her travel around every once in a while to bring snow to that area but it quickly melts and becomes water and but she ends up finding a sense of community and but again it's that that moral that keeps coming back up in this story of how you treat others matters and there there this book is slightly problematic as any feminist will tell you that you know, the the fact that this art all starts because she turned down a man, like she gets cursed <laughs> because she turns down a man, that's problematic. Like, mm -hmm. there are many times and places where women feel like they need to lie in order to turn down a man because otherwise he might hurt her. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a very real problem in our world. And um, so, like, so the beginning of the book, I think, is problematic in that way. But I think, again, it comes down to that, is this being descriptive or prescriptive? Mm -hmm. You know, like, this is a common problem in our world. Here it is, again, in this fiction world mm -hmm. where she turns down a man. Granted, she could have done it better. Mm -hmm. She could have been nicer. But she turns down a man, and so therefore he curses her because she didn't want to be with him. Mm-hmm. So it is, it is problematic, but I think at the core of this book is the question, is the moral of how you treat others matters. And I think that that is a very Christian message. Again, this is fantasy, so there's no actual God, um, especially the Christian God. But, um, you know, we, we as Christians strive to treat each other well. You know, as Jesus teaches us, um, Treat others as you would wish to be treated. And Smitha, definitely at the beginning, is not treating others how she would wish to be treated. Like, she wants everybody to praise her, think highly of her, wait on her hand and foot a little bit. Like, especially because she has a younger sister and she often tries to get her younger sister to, like, do simple things. Even, like, bring her a cup of water when it's like, you could stand up and walk and get that mm -hmm. cup of water mm -hmm. yourself. Um... 
And so it's, she's, she's very self-absorbed and expects everybody else to be absorbed in her as well. And she doesn't have a whole lot of outward focus of caring for others. And it's only until she experiences this very humbling curse is she able to realize how cold her heart is to others and is able to then, you know, over time it starts metaphorically warming as she learns to care for others. It, it's interesting how, as you describe this story, um, it seems uh, like one of the one of the one of the things you can play with when you're in a sort of a fantasy or fairy tale kind of a setting is the way that you can sort of do uh, morality lessons or things in ways in exaggerated ways that, like in regular life, people don't get their comeuppance quite so perfectly. You know, as you're cold in heart, so now you'll be bring you know. But in some ways, like this feels like it's got the same. Um, moral elegance of like a Beauty and the Beast, where you know it starts with the, it's the prince who's uh, you know absorbed with appearance and things, and the person at his door is turns out to be a witch and curses him because he's been so vain. Now people have to you know, so there, there's a there's a similar sort of a thing that operates in this story that works like fairy tales often do, and that it's almost like. You sus- just like like you're taught to suspend disbelief when you're reading a, a book of fantasy. Okay, there's not real wizards, but I'll trust this is st- that kind of thing. There's almost like a suspension of some of the moral problematicness. Okay, yes, there's things that are problematic, but this drives home the central idea of our actions and the way we treat people matter. Can I hold on to that and 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 for a moment suspend? Yeah, there are problematic issues about creepy wizard guy cursing her because she won't go on a date with him. But, like, can I, okay, can I still see that there's a lesson or something to be learned in this story? How did you first come across this story? I'm curious. Um, it's, uh, Charlie N. Holmberg is one of my favorite authors, which I think is in part because, uh, for one year for Christmas, one of my parishioners gave me a Kindle Unlimited subscription for a year, and she was one of the authors that, like, had agreed to, like, let her audiobooks be as, you know, you could listen to her audiobooks for free if mm-hmm. you had Kindle Unlimited. And um, so I listened to a bunch of her stuff, and then when I later no longer had Kindle Unlimited, but I have an Audible subscription, she's one of the authors that I frequently use my credits to buy because um, I really like her audio, like, I really like her books full mm-hmm. stop but then like the way that it it like it lends itself well to an audiobook yeah okay had you had familiar familiarity with her before this um before getting the subscription at all or no. so it's just just by sheer chance that she was willing to let her work be used there huh yeah yeah, yeah. she hadn't let her work be put into kindle unlimited i'm not sure i would have found her but um I also really like fantasy, so, yeah. like, if there's a good chance okay. I would have eventually stumbled across her. I think uh, Followed by Frost was the first book of hers that I had listened to, though. Okay, okay. But I highly recommend it. If you like fantasy, Charlie and Holmberg, very good author. Um, can I ask, um, in, in, in this story, um, in, in some ways it feels like, uh, 
there is this the simplicity of a fairy tale in that like again it, like I can't help but hear sort of echoes of Beauty and the Beast of sort of like person who's mean or rude has to learn how to be kind to others that kind of thing it's just sort of a right. different metaphor that instead of being a monster she's you know brings winter with her that kind of thing um, and maybe the million times my kids have watched Disney's Frozen I can't help but hear like the story <laughs> yeah. of Elsa and Anna and, and all that in the background too yeah but the cold does bother her unlike Elsa gotcha yeah like, it's, it sounds like there's definitely some differences there but like um um, there, there. It it sounds like it's got the clarity of uh, a fairy tale of like, and here's the lesson of the story. Are there are there other nuances or or are there other complexities to to the story? Are there I guess are there ways where when when you hear the story year after year after year that makes it worth it for you like to to spend time hearing this story again, knowing that you probably already get what the moral is every by this point. <laughs> often reminds me of is how small things sometimes matter. Hmm. Um, like at one point when she's in the desert country, when she's not needed, they mm-hmm. have her just kind of up in a cave up in the mountains and then people will come and visit, like come and bring her food every couple of days. And one of the maids who brings her food will actually stay for half the day and will visit with her and, like, uh, teaches her how to weave and, like, will bring her books and, like, you know, treat her with human dignity. Mm. And, like, it's not any big things. It's Mm -hmm. just a lot of little things, taking time to spend time with her and to talk with her, whereas everybody else is terrified of her because, like, if you were to touch her skin you would get really bad frostbite within seconds. Mm. Um, So, like, she's a very dangerous person to be around, as well as if you grew up in a desert region, like, that kind of cold is going to feel really unnatural to you and really uncomfortable. Um, But this one maid really takes the time to do those small things. Um, And it's, and it's it's things like that. It's that reminder of small things matter, and sometimes small things matter but in a bad way. Like, Mm. you could do a small thing without, like, thinking or meaning to, and it's going to hurt somebody. Like, again, her accidentally touching somebody gives them severe frostbite. Um, And in a desert country, again, you're not going to know how Mm. to treat frostbite. Um, You know, she wasn't doing it intentionally or maliciously. It's just accidental touching. It hurts. Um, this, this, this that you just mentioned suggests to me something I had not, I had not thought about it, um, that, uh, it sounds like that the, the transformation in Smith's character of her sort of learning to be a decent human being toward other people, it, it seems like it, an important part of how she gets there is by being the recipient of kindness, not just suffering the punishment of this curse, right? Yeah. Yeah, because, so she spends a couple of years wandering the mountains by herself for a while in her own home country, but it wasn't to avoid people because she doesn't want to hurt them. She's looking for another wizard to Mm. break her curse. Like, she, and she starts avoiding towns only because people start showing up with weapons to Mm -hmm. drive her away, and it's more of, I don't want to get hurt. Mm -hmm. Not thinking, oh, my mere presence is hurting them. Right. Like, it it, it really isn't until she starts receiving kindness herself that she starts understanding it. After, especially after so long of not receiving kindness, and the only person who's talking to her is Death, who shows up every once in a while. 
and death is really only there to try to convince her to come with him, presumably mm. to die, because mm -hmm. that's all that's all he wants is mm. for people to come with him. Death is a jerk. Dead. I mean, death yeah. is a jerk. Yeah. Right, right. He's not a good character. And the first time I listened to it for the longest, like for a while, while listening to it, I thought he was supposed to be the romantic. Oh, like, interesting. Uh huh. Person, like, mm -hmm. and I was like. I don't think we're like I feel really <laughs> uncomfortable shipping these two characters because he is not not nice. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so spoiler alert: he is not a romantic interest for Smitha. So just to put everybody at ease, okay. that's not the end game. Um, but this this idea that that we, we've stumbled on here seems really really important. That like like how how do any of us? grow or change in our character and the the places that are kind of rotten and selfish and jerk like how do they get uh changed or developed in us and i think sometimes the impulse is well people who are mean they should be punished into being good and i'm not really sure that that ever happens in like that maybe that's the fairy tale and that reality is love is what changes people and like you know kindness is what like again it's slow sometimes and sometimes it's got to take sort of a jagged slow detoury kind of a zigzag kind of a, a path and maybe you have to be at a place where you can appreciate small kindnesses and that maybe that means you have to have some wilderness time you know to, to get to a point where you can receive or appreciate it but just the idea of punishing somebody into being right. nice because i think that that like you have to be in a place to appreciate small kindnesses is, yeah. is key because at the beginning of the story when she's at home and she's snobbish and you know she receives kindnesses mm -hmm. and often small kindnesses from her parents her sister her friends um but that doesn't like like she she kind of feels like she's entitled to it she's she deserves those kindnesses yeah. Because she is so pretty and so smart and so awesome that she deserves them. And in that regard, when when you're convinced that you've earned something, you can't receive a kindness as a kindness. You treat it like an entitlement. And right. th there's something important about that. Even even though the the creepy wizard in the beginning may intend this as punishment, this ends up being something that sort of clears the ground for her to be changed in her character and maybe and who knows maybe the wizard is really you know clever maybe he's playing chess and is thinking about like you'll you'll suffer to the point where then you'll be able to receive kindness and it will change your heart or something like that but that seems to be a, a really important idea and and like wearing my church nerd hat as we're having this conversation at the beginning of this season of advent like i know sometimes church folk especially church folk who are mindful of seasons like this like we get clobbered for like, why do you spend time doing this like deliberately penitential sort of slow, you know, stripped down kind of a season, whether it's Lent before Easter, whether it's Advent before Christmas. And sometimes we can get, um, you know, pegged as, you know, you don't be so grinchy because they let it be Christmas. Like, and, but there's a reason for those sort of spare times. And sometimes it's that sort of the, the, the spareness, the sparseness of a time like that. Um, it's not meant to punish us. It's not like, you know, you must suffer through a bunch of minor key Gregorian chant hymns for enough in order to, to properly then have earned the right to sing Jingle Bells or Come All You Faithful or whatever. But suffering Gregorian chant <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> um, but, but you, you get what I mean. Like, yeah. th there are these deliberate times where, for, for, for traditions that, that, that mark out the time that we do uh, of Advent or Lent, it, there are folks like, can't we just, you know, cut to the chase? It's, you know, like, 
our, our our radio stations are already playing Christmas songs and uh, uh, like how, why why do we carve out that time deliberately saying we're not there yet we're not there yet and why do we deliberately say not only are we not there yet we're going to deliberately take four weeks worth of candle lighting to talk about how we're not there yet um, but but through that not there yet there is the hope yeah there is the hope that Jesus will come again mm-hmm. or in Smitha's case the curse will be broken right and it is that hope that we cling to in the coldest, darkest hour. And, you know, for Smitha, that was years on a mountain, on mountains, in the mountains. Um, And then even years in the desert. But there was still that hope. Um, You know, there's that hope that this is not the rest of my life, that someday this will be better, and that, you know, today is better than yesterday. But there's that hope. And I think that is a huge part of Advent in that way yeah. is the hope that, yes, this is a long journey of waiting, but it's not forever. I think that's the other thing that I find really helpful about in in a lot of our tradition's way of approaching Advent is that a lot of the, the whether scripture readings or even hymnody, uh, comes out of the experience of Israel in the exile, waiting for restoration. And that, that experience of exile, nobody knew when they were living through it how long this was going to last. Um, and even when exile ends and they go back home, it doesn't feel quite like what they remembered. There was something new that God did. And for Christians, we go like, oh, well, that's Jesus. It's worth the payoff. But for folks living through that that period waiting after exile, there's a, I was waiting for this Jewish rabbi to come along who was going to, you know, like, the, the, this is this is the thing I was waiting for. But that 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 experience of sometimes the, the waiting is without a guarantee of it's just going to be 25 days worth of waiting on your advent calendar. And then we get, like, sometimes the waiting is long and sometimes no one has promised an end date, but how do you live, hopefully, in the midst of those kind of seasons? And instead of assuming the goal is how to get out of them as fast as possible, maybe the question is how do I use that? period whether it feels like the wilderness or it feels like you know the the weeks of advent or it's the years in exile or the wilderness for jesus you know like how do i use those experiences and could god be doing something uh or using those experiences in ways to shape me so that when the next thing comes when when finally we are at christmas or when the curse finally is broken um i'm i'm ready in in a position to receive it i think in a lot of ways that's why for me at least, it's worth continuing to do this like annual thing called Advent. Um, and that it's it's seriously not that any of us get like a kickback from the blue or purple candle manufacturers. <laughs> um, but like the, there's something good for our souls in that, you know what, everybody else is rushing off to the, let's pause for a minute and let's be okay with living in the incomplete, the tension, the we're not resolved yet. Because sometimes we have to have those things cleared away so that we can be transformed by small acts of kindness. I mean, how often in our life do we have to wait for other things? Yeah. And, you know, if it's a big enough thing, if it's an exciting enough thing, then we're willing to do it. I mean, it's hard. It, it mm-hmm. will be cranky. We like to, you know, we'll, I'll complain. I won't speak for anybody else. I complain. Um, but, you know, we, we know in the long run that wait is worth it. Mm-hmm. And so, again, the celebration of things like Advent and Lent, you know, the hope and the joy and the love and everything that comes at the end of that, it, it's worth it. And and I think, like, when I when I hear this story and I think of Smitha and, like, the kindness that these pe- folks did for her in the desert, you know, I think about those stinkers in my life, those jerks in my life, you know. Or even those folks that, like, maybe they're not stinkers and jerks, but, like, they're, they're people I want 
them to to come to know Christ and they're just not there yet and you, you spend months and years praying for them and trying to guide them into like you know let's 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 talk about God a little bit and let's do you know um and just how those little things can can change people we don't change people by beating them over the head with our bibles like nobody wants that nobody wants that done to them nobody should really want to do that you know i think of the the they'll know where your christians buy our love mm-hmm. you know and it's those small little acts of kindness and of love that really change the stinkers of the world and, and the jerks of the world like you said steve we can't punish people into doing good mm-hmm. we've got to show them good I have to confess, one of the things I regularly struggle with as a parent of young children who want my children not to be jerks, and also as a struggling and continually recovering and relapsing jerk myself, uh, I'm, I'm working the steps every morning, <laughs> back at square one, oh, was a jerk already today, um, is there are times when, you know, a seven and a nine-year-old do rotten mean things. They say mean things to adults, they say mean things to each other, they take each other's stuff, and there's sometimes where my immediate reaction is this sort of forceful, coercive, and sometimes it feels like it has to be, like, mm-hmm. you'll be physically separated from your siblings be, to to stop you from punching them, right, you know, or, or, you know, sitting on top of them and pinning, you know, like, there's reasons. But when I actually want to change their attitude, I discover again and again, counterintuitively sometimes, that, like, no amount of my yelling or lecturing does the trick. But a change in attitude on my part that starts with how can I show a little bit of kindness right now? Mm-hmm. Not to give permission or uh, approve of what they've done, but like, what's going on that's provoking you to do this? Um, and sometimes it's after whatever other unpleasant consequence. Sometimes it's in the midst of. But like, th- those have been the most effective parenting moments sincerely. Mm-hmm. Like, in the years I've been figuring this out, um, it is quite often those moments where undeserved kindness shows up even to stinkers rather than me thinking more punishing because so often more punishing makes them want to dig their heels in and be like i'm right on this and i'm gonna you know and it makes things adversarial and the only thing that gets them to let their guard down um sometimes is an unexpected kindness um Mm -hmm. but while also still protecting the person who just got pummeled or hit or something like that the other thing that this whole conversation make me think of is um, two authors um, whose, whose theology has continually uh, affected and shaped my own. Frederick Beekner, who's written a gajillion things, but he wrote a book called Telling the Truth, the Gospel as Comedy, Tragedy, and Fairy Tale. And Robert Farrar Capon is another one who often explores the idea of gospel as fairy tale. And the first time I came across that idea, I sort of like had this visceral reaction, like, are you saying it's all made up? Is it not true? And like, that's not how they mean it. But they mean to say... There is something about the story of how uh, the, the the gospel works, of a God who enters into danger and goes to the sake of death, and that there's this promise of God's intention is to bring all things to good ending, like to, to make all things new in the end, has the feel of kind of how a fairy tale works, mm-hmm. and that in a way part of the beauty of the Christian story is that confidence as we're living through it, that God promises to that in the end all will be well and all will be well and all manner of things will be well. And that if there is that promise of a good ending to all of creation's story, it makes it possible to live through the really, really difficult, tragic parts. Um, and that sometimes the way the gospel works feels like the logic of a fairy tale. Like, why would the God who's the savior of the world come and die on a cross? That sounds nonsensical. But in fairy tale logic, there's sort of a, yeah, the, 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 
quest has to involve sort of that sort of self-emptying um, that I, I not really thought of for a long, long time, but your retelling the story helps me see that again. It's interesting to me that in of the, of this series, uh, Sarah, your your bit of pop culture is the least explicitly Christian, and yet in some ways has tapped really, really deeply into some of the most deeply spiritual and and uh, authentically Christian themes uh, that, that that we may explore in this whole time. That the the reason we keep doing this this Advent thing, the reason we keep even telling the story we do, has a lot to do with the way small acts of kindness transform our hearts. Cool. Thanks for introducing us to the story. You're welcome. I look forward to hearing what we talk about next week. Well, uh, so this this week, light one Advent candle on your Advent wreath if you're the sort of person who has one. And uh, join us next time for more conversation here with pop culture and Advent here and Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all. Bye.